I think I'm having an art attack. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Professor Extraordinaire Lizzie Daston, art historian, genius, almost a rabbi, but not even <laughs> close, and myself, historian, artist, dancer, culture changer, philosopher, disruptor, mm. mm-hmm. rebel. Rebel without a cause, with a lot of causes, without anything at all. Hey, you're an anarchist. I am. Yeah. <sighs> okay, guys. And away, way, go. And if you didn't get who our artist was today, it's I, way, way. And that's why I said, and away, way, go. Okay, guys, <laughs> I am so excited to talk about I, way, way, because to me... There are artists who have to create with a need that is beyond their own importance. And I feel like Ai Weiwei is one of those artists. He was, let's just start off with, he was born in 1957. He's from China. His father was a poet and also a rebel, much like Ai Weiwei. The apple did not fall far from the tree with him. He actually witnessed his father being abused, assaulted for his liberal ideology many times growing up. So whether that shaped the way he thought about the world or not, we don't know. I'm sure it did. But... In general, Ai Weiwei was always a seeker of truth. And he wanted something beyond. So he went to New York in the 80s and wanted to, you know, was exposed to all of that we know now about contemporary art the Warhols, the Jeff Koons, the. Uh, Duchamp's Duchamp's yeah especially Duchamp you're right correctly because I would say if his work would be derivative or influenced by anybody whatsoever I would say Duchamp would be number one so that's a good that's a good point Uh, and in New York he really experimented fucked off (laughs) <laughs> as his big show was in China, the yeah. name of it. But he did, you know That's what I mean? Smart. He did a lot of what I did, uh, which was a lot of coffee shop hopping. And quite honestly, if you look at the history of artists, there was a lot of that with all artists. Picasso was a cafe guy. Many artists were. I mean, like, look at Toulouse-Lautrec and the Moulin Rouge. and the, These people were living life, experiencing life, because eventually they would create art about life. But I way way when he came back to China, and another thing about him is he had his peers, right? He had his group of clandestine artists who were rebels and social disruptors and really wanted to write, sing, and paint and sculpt about the realities of China and how much they were being silenced, and how much there was a need for transparency. 
And I think that is a really important point because one of the most dynamic elements of Ai Weiwei's career to me is this dialectic that we have between the East and the West. And so he is an artist from China. He spent a lot of his formative schooling years in New York. I think now he's probably a global artist living all around the world, but he I'm pretty sure in, he's, he lives in he Berlin lives in, now. Right, right. Because, you know, they gave him his passport only two, Finally. two years ago and allowed him to leave. And, and as you can see, he is not talking shit about China anymore. Right. And then there was this whole issue of surveillance. And he had his earliest years in exile. His family was exiled because, as you say, his father was also an anarchist, more because he was an intellectual than a a more vehement political activist, as I would say I is, but... And still- worked in labor camps. I think his dad was made to work. Yeah, he it, had it, to clean communal toilets, I think, was one of his his tasks that uh, he was forced to execute. And so I grew up in this environment of bucking the system, really questioning, having this curiosity that can turn into something that's more actionizing. And when they were able to return to China or to return to Beijing. I think I was about 19. And so he spent many, many years of his early childhood in exile right by the North Korean border. And his work really identifies still with these themes of questioning, of confronting, of not taking the the political world climate just at face value. And I think that's a very Western mentality and not so much an Eastern one. And I believe that's part of the reason why the Western art world has so embraced him. But at the cost at certain moments in I's life of his career. And so I remember when I was... And and his health and his well-being. Sure. and, And, you know, his freedom. Right. And he was asked to represent China at the Venice Biennale. I can't remember the year, but that is a huge honor. And so for him to be this visual emblem of China and then for the work itself to be so inquisitive and even just negative about Chinese political ideology, that I think was was pretty bold. And that's, I think, right around the time that he did that big show, The F Off Show, which is not exactly how I'm sure China would want itself to be represented. And so the schism between the West and the East is really interesting and a huge part of Ai's career. And he confronts this in his own art too. There was one early work that he did called, we talked about this earlier, but the Han Urn, where he takes this urn that supposedly was 2,000 years old. And some people question whether it was a real object, who cares? The concept, I think, is strong regardless. I believe that it was a vintage urn, but ultimately I don't think it matters. And in this triptych format, so three different photographs, we see I basically looking the exact same. He's staring at the lens of the camera in this deadpan mode. And in the, the various Ed Seriatim photographs, we see him dropping the urn until finally in the third, the urn has shattered. And the fact that it is a triptych format is really significant because a triptych is typically used in religious spaces where the central image will be Christ on a cross, 
And then the flanking images will also come from significant biblical moments like the Annunciation or the Deposition. And when I appropriates that format, but his content is destroying a cultural past, that I think in and of itself is an act of revolution. And a lot of people were very critical. How dare you have this this really aggressive act of destruction and violence. But he was saying, listen, Chairman Mao, he believes that we can only forge a new modern sense of our own culture if we disavow the past. And so that's just what I'm doing. I'm destroying the past just like Mao is doing intellectually. Oh, yeah. And saying by destroying the past, I'm opening up a pathway to the future. And I think that's what he was also saying is like down with the regime, down with the old and up with the new. Right. And so then you have his very famous photographs, which he did a series of many of these photographs, which is his fuck you, which his finger is up in the camera. And in the background is Mao. And then he, he did that. He did that all over the world. He did it to the Eiffel Tower. He did it to the White House. He did it to his own Olympic stadium, the Bird's Nest, which he helped. He was one of the creative directors. I know he had a big part in that. But then said, yeah, I built this, but you know what? This is bullshit. This whole thing is bullshit. This is a complete facade. You guys are bringing Westerners and and the world to the Olympics, and yet you're displacing our own people. You're telling our people, get out. You're giving them nothing in return. You're creating this, oh, look how beautiful and perfect China is but it's all bullshit. And so he's saying, fuck you. Well, you know, that shit don't fly in China. (laughs) Yeah, shit ain't like America. You can be like, fuck you, Trump, fuck you, Obama, fuck you, whoever. You cannot do that there. That is a highly, highly volatile place to be politically active and to be liberal. You are, if you are not part of the system, you will be destroyed. Or if you don't outwardly celebrate the system, then you will be silenced or at least muffled. And that happened to, I I think it was 2011, but he was arrested by the Chinese government for, it was some vague reason, I think economic crimes. And he was imprisoned for 81 days. And that's when the, the big issue of governmental surveillance and this attempt to stymie his own well, creative yeah. voice, that's really when that conversation came well, to let, a head. Yeah, well let's let's back up just a little bit. Cause I mean, there was a there was a lot of a lot of reasons and a lot of things that transpired before that that I just want to touch upon a little bit because he really is, you know, he's he's a conf- he's confusing for everybody to say, like, is he a political activist? Is he a satirist? Is he a uh is he a rebel? Is he an artist? Because Let's just talk about the fact that he doesn't touch his work. Is he capable of touching his work? Yes, he is. Uh, all of the high-level craftsmanship stuff, not probably not at that level level, but they're his ideas, and he's very democratic about his ideas, obviously, as he is about his philosophy. But he likes other people to do his stuff, and he likes people to uh, he likes to share ideas, and he likes to give ideas as well. So the whole process is quite democratic in terms of his creation. Uh, What happened initially is that the cops were going around and filming him everywhere and watching him because when the earthquake happened and thousands and thousands of people died, 
he went there and he was like, well, what's going on with all these kids? Like all these kids were built with this tofu architecture. And so it just all crumbled. What does that mean? It just was, it was done shabbily. Just really shoddy, poor uh, construction that wasn't done to code. And it was the government's fault. So there's over 5,000 children that died. And when he said, who were the children that died? Oh, no, no, they didn't die. No one died. Everything said, like, nothing was like... So that's what happened. He started, okay, well, that's bullshit. So let's get to the bottom of that. He and his people, the activists, helped get the names of all of these children that died. And then he put that list together. And then he released the list. And then they started blocking him because, you know, Google, you just don't have access to Google or Instagram or Facebook out there. It's not happening. But what does he find? Twitter. Twitter becomes his his source, his direct contact with the world. So he starts putting these up on Twitter. Now, what is that? What, what Way is doing is it's not as much as going for equal rights like other artists have done in the past. He's not going for uh, democracy at this point like other artists. He's going for transparency. It's really about transparency. Well, if this happened, then at least tell the truth. Show us. Oh, and if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it myself. And I'm going to do it with my own people. Well, everybody's, that's a dangerous place to be. The government doesn't like that. So he puts it out on the internet, puts the names out on the internet, very bad. Eventually what they wind up doing is breaking into his hotel door, kicking it down, punching him in the face. So by the time he gets to Munich, his brain is swelling. He could die. And of course, from the hospital bed, he does his his signifying (laughs) fuck you, middle finger. But this is just getting him in deeper and deeper water so that so that when you talk about when he, you know, there's all these things that he's doing. And and Twitter, right, is becoming his canvas. That's becoming his canvas to the world. This is what they're doing. He's trying to file a complaint against them. They're basically like, oh my God, they're filming him. He's filming them filming him. So it becomes this cat and mouse game of you want to film me? You want to think that you're, you know, you're going to control everything? I'm going to film you. I'm going to control everything. And I'm going to get this out to the Western world yeah. and to all of my supporters everywhere. And so people are really supporting. So that when they did kidnap him, essentially, because he was at the airport, they went to the airport, they, they got him in a hood. They threw him in a hood, detained him, and he was gone. That's the thing about China. It's not like you get a call to your lawyer. You're gone. There is no, people are like, where's Ai Weiwei? So thank God. He was who he is, so you've right. got the no, world. Right. And then, thank God, he had this relationship to the West and that he was able to innovatively use Twitter as a way to e- express and communicate his activism. Yeah. And I remember there were protests all over L.A. There yep. was one at LACMA, and I believe people from the West raised the lion's share of the $1.85 million that he had to relinquish to the Chinese government. Yeah, it was like two point something million dollars, two point four million dollars. Was it that much? I mean, no matter. Yeah, it was a it was a fabricated number that was high, but not outrageous to where the point to make it so he couldn't get out. Right. You know, they what did they now? Here's the thing: what did they do to him? They broke him to a certain extent. They had to because when he came out, he could not talk. He clearly had a gag order. He was not allowed to say anything. When the press came and he was so vocal all the time, and this guy was vocal about everything. They did this, they did that, this isn't right, this isn't fair, this isn't true. He said nothing. 
But he did through his art. He did a huge installation, a sculptural one yes. of these miniature scenes of a cell. Yeah. And the one that I remember because it was such a, a visceral act of dehumanization is that he is on the toilet and there are these guards watching him. So there was right. no moment of right. privacy. And that I he think He was in solitary confinement. Right. Yeah. But it epitomizes and it kind of it visualizes the surveillance that he's been under for his whole life. A hundred percent. And it was so crazy that they uh they built a studio for him because he was clearly one of the most important Chinese artists in, you know, at, at this time. And then they demolished it. They decided to demolish it. And it, no reason, no real reason. They just came in. He had this gorgeous studio. My Lord, Jesus, what, what a beautiful studio. Then they just bulldozed it. He filmed them bulldozing it. He documents everything. He's, he's right in there with them. They take it away from him. And then soon after put him in jail. But where he's living, he has surveillance cameras everywhere. He has people sleeping in cars watching him. I mean, this is not a fun life. And yes, you have to be brave in the face of such adversity, in the face of such fascism to be able to say, fuck you, leave me alone. I'm still going to talk about all the children that were dismissed by you. I'm still going to talk about all of the inequalities and horrors that were that we we have here and and like what's going on we we don't have freedom of speech we have such it's a crazy thing because what it's such an evolved cultural you know landscape and he's speaking out for the people he's really an art like talk about an artist for the people by the people of the people that's really him but i will like to say two things, is that, and I, I think Ai Weiwei is incredible. I really do. I love his art, uh, even his, all the stuff from the sunflowers. Oh, yeah, we so need to we, talk we, about we, that we in greater depth. we can talk about that all, but I, wanna, I do want to make a point, because there is hypocrisy with human beings. That's just how we are. And oftentimes when he's talking about all this, equal, sentient creatures, loving, kindness, fairness for everybody. There's a tremendous amount of meat eating. I would like to point that out. A lot. Really? A lot of meat eating. He's always eating meat on camera, and there's no consci consciousness whatever for, for the animals. That's one thing I want well, to point out. Well, he loves cats, so he's at least he conscious He's very indulgent that. and very overweight, and I feel like there's, there is that. And there is also the fact that, and whatever, man, shit happens. But he's got his wife, his kid, and then he has another kid that comes into the picture because he's having affairs, whatever. So listen, for all of, and this is historically true for, for many political activists who are, uh, he is not a saint by any stretch of the imagination, nor does I, do I think that he claims one, but like, let's just call, you know, call it what it is. Let's be real about it. No, that's fair. And we can't be equal crusaders for every right. element of society sure. that we want to disrupt. So for sure. And, sure. So he's not perfect, but I think that perfect, what he does is it just, remarkable. It just when he's eating pig <laughs> and, and, and all these animals and he's talking about equality, it's for me, I'm having a hard time with that just because you're going to walk the walk, you walk the walk, you're going to talk the talk, you talk the talk. But just that for me feels uh, hypocritical. That's just a sidebar now 
his art, though, after he was uh, silenced, he does come out with a, a really cool installation where he makes molds of these video surveillance footage and stuff like that. And that's really cool. You know, he does all of that. He recreates the jail cell. He recreates the guards. Uh, he, and, then he, and then he seems to go into another direction, you know, like the sunflower seeds. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Because there were a lot of sunflower seeds at the Tate, I believe, in England. Yeah, right? and I actually think that that was done prior to this arrest, but it doesn't matter. There's still this immersiveness to this installation like there was to the ma- the uh, the molds of the surveillance footage. And so I think that is a leitmotif of his work is that he just wants to envelop the viewer in his concept. And when he did the sunflower seeds, that was at the Tate Modern in London, and he filled the main hall of the exhibition space with, I think it was 100 million porcelain sunflower seeds. Some <laughs> astronomical... No, it was crazy. Crazy, People, you and You could I go in there and bury it. yourself in it. Well, at first you could, and then too many people were taking the sunflowers or disrupting oh. the plane, and so then there was a level of of distance between okay. the viewer and the installation itself, but he hired hundreds of people. I'm mm. pretty sure they were all women to hand cast and paint each sunflower seed. And so think about that. That's a hundred or a hundred million unique objects filling the hall of this modern art museum. And that I think is just such an elegant example of what you see or what you think you see is not really what you're actually seeing because they looked like they could have been mass produced, but they were in fact all hand lovingly made. And I think that's a whole commentary on the made in China phenomenon. Is that what that was? In part, he didn't really describe the intentionality of the installation. So I think (laughs) it's open to multifarious interpretations. But that for me was one where we outsource as Americans in the West, we outsource so much of our production to China. Right. And we don't really think of work that's made in China as being handcrafted. That is more of a local bespoke phenomenon. But I is circumventing that. And now the work that's outsourced to China has been lovingly handcrafted and produced and painted these tiny little things. Yeah. And his, he's hands off in terms of the actual creation of the objects. Right, he's a conceptual artist. Yeah, he's, a conce- he's, he's, an, he's an idea guy, and he comes up with these ideas and shares ideas and gives ideas and takes ideas and loves to be collaborative in the process and realizes what, that he's outsourcing anything that he's less than excellent at doing also, which is what you know a smart person does, right? Sure, and then to get back to your word, which I think was aptly used, he's transparent about everything. He He never said, I hand-painted and hand-molded 100 million porcelain sunflower seeds. He was very descriptive in how that work came to fruition. And I think that's really important. And that also goes back to what you said earlier about his influences and how Duchamp is a profound influence on him And it's not about the making of an object, but it's about the repurposing of something that's pre-existing. And I think that I does that throughout his career with the urn. That was something that already lived, that he is recontexting and therefore turning into his own art piece. 
And even though these sunflower seeds were not pre-existing, he's still outsourcing the process of it. And so he's distancing himself from the physical act of making in order to create something that has more of a more of a politically activist bent that he is kind of puppeteering. Yeah, and now he is working a lot in the refugee space, but I feel like ever since he was detained, beaten, brutalized, whatever happened for those 81 days, definitely affected his take. I think he's still outspoken, not as much. And in fact, when he came out and kind of pivoted, I'm not going to say change direction, but he he took a, a little bit of a pivot and did work that was less overtly political, but according to him was still politically motivated and perhaps a lot more subtle to the eye. He was then given a lot more latitude and a lot more opportunity to show. And then eventually, uh, not that long ago, was given his passport and then was like, Zoop, I'm out of here, right? And so now his work is really about refugees. He's in Greece, he's in Berlin, he's doing, he's doing other politically motivated works and other works that are not as seemingly political. I mean, it's, you, you know, the, the chandeliers and the, uh, just all that other Duchampian. Yeah, he's aestheticizing uh, yeah. a little bit more, which a I think bit is more, great yeah. that he's no, allowing sure. himself to take permutations in his career. No, he's a real, and in that way, he really is a real artist where he's having his, not necessarily his renaissance, but much like Picasso, who had his blue period, his rose period, cubism, and he's going through the next iteration of who he is and who he is going to be. And because of that, uh, is just really an artist. And he also dresses like an artist, sorry. You know, like he's just like one of those guys you look at him like, oh, that guy's an artist, like for sure. And he lives it. He walks it. You know, he, he, he lives like an artist. He thinks always about the next thing. He's a thinker and he is definitely a, a motivator. And I think that were there a lot of rebels who were anti-establishment against the government and against what was going on? Of course, he was the one that was chosen perhaps because the window was open at that right time and he walked through at that moment. And he was a lot thinner to walk through that window too, probably. Uh, but no, seriously, but like it wasn't necessarily that he was the greatest artist. It wasn't necessarily that he was the, the most outspoken, but I think it was a perfect storm. And then he became the guy, you know, much like in history, why people become the person because it's right place, right time, right moment. And then had to champion that and was very, very, very courageous and brave about doing that. Which I think is a really important note to emphasize is just the fearlessness with which he exhibits his political activism. Because for listeners in the West, that may not feel quite so courageous of an act, but especially in China, under the rule of Mao and that whole cultural communist revolution, that's an act of extreme bravery. Yeah, I'd have been... A chicken. I'd have been like, oh, damn. No, I don't know. You know, like, you don't know until you're there. But, like, he 
he was definitely brave and he came up against a lot and he gave a lot of truth uh, to the people. And I think that, you know, for all the horrible things that Twitter did, I think this was one of the great things that Twitter did was able to give a voice. Yeah, this platform. From, yeah, from the east to the to the west and from the east to the east, too, because they couldn't stop that. I agree. And I think that the messages and the activism that he exerts is specific to China, but I think that it's also just something that everybody can use within their own space, their own strata. And so I think that he is universal in his themes of political curiosity and asking for transparency Mm -hmm. and trying to reveal sinister underbellies of political systems. Yeah. He is an important artist to put into the art history books for sure, without a doubt. I don't say that lightly, you know, because it was a lot of bravery. Uh, and still is. And I'm interested to see what he creates down the road, you know, because he's done so much already. Like, it's amazing to think about, is there more in him? And yeah, I think, and I think there's there a is. lot more. I think so. All right, guys, leave us a review. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Art Attack Podcast. That is our Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes, anywhere you can. I don't know if you're listening on Spotify or where else are we, Lizzie? We're Spotify. All the places. We're 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 every but we're everywhere, uh, and also you know write to us as to what you want to hear about because we talk about everything and everything art we love. Peace. <laughs>